Section two of G. K. Chesterton in the Bibliophile Magazine. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Larry Wilson. Why books become popular. The question of why books are popular is much confused by certain phrases which are intended to be highly intellectual and fastidious, but which are in truth both vulgar and unreasonable. One of these, for instance, is to call the ordinary public stupid, an expression which is itself the quintessence of stupidity. Stupid, if it means anything, must mean an abnormal and notable deficiency of mind. It must be extraordinary, and to say that the ordinary man is extraordinarily stupid is a contradiction in terms. It is like saying that most men are below the middle height. The average cannot be below the average. If any critic says so, he must be below the intellectual average himself. Another expression of the same kind which confounds the whole controversy is that which refers to people as uneducated. It is not a piece of mere muddle-headedness like the phrase stupid. Nevertheless, it is a mistake. The truth is that there are no people who are uneducated. There are only a large number of people who receive various forms of a thoroughly bad education. But no one is untaught, no one is untouched. There is no poor Indian with untutored mind. Some other and older Indian tutors his mind with a curiously curved stick. Every gutter snipe is learned. The only question, and that often a lurid one, is what he has learnt. Fagin was quite as much of an educationalist as Froebel. But the education given by Fagin is not the only kind of bad education, nor is it, in my opinion, the worst. For definite periods of history, whole classes of the community, upper and middle, as well as lower classes, may be steeped in some false philosophy or some inhuman routine. Between Bunyan and Wesley, there must have been millions of children who grew up shuddering in the dark domesticity of Calvinism, in the real Puritan home where the devil is kept in the coal cellar. In the public schools of today, there must be millions of boys growing up with the firm conviction that to be an English gentleman is to be a perfect man. These are thorough educations, and bad ones. Let us keep well in mind these two preliminary truisms. First, that the ordinary man is a man of ordinary human intelligence, or he would not be ordinary. Second, that this human intelligence has always received some cultivation, but unfortunately it is often an evil or unwise cultivation. Having got these obvious facts well in hand, we shall be free from all supercilious follies about the swinish multitude and the man in the street, and we may be able to attack with some profit or enlightenment the really difficult question of why bad books so often sell like hot cakes. We may dismiss the dandified nonsense which talks as if this principle were universal, as if good books always failed and bad books always succeeded. The divisions, of course, cut across each other. George Meredith is a great man, but so was Dickens. Mr. Frederick Wedmore is a clever and artistic writer, but not more clever and artistic than Mr. W. W. Jacobs. Some books are deservedly popular, some undeservedly some crude books are bought thousands of crude books are not bought but we will suppose that we have to deal here 
only with the crude books that are bought. There are certain novelists, notably Miss Corelli, Mr. Silas Hawking, and others, who undoubtedly satisfy millions of the public, but who cannot satisfy a strong literary taste. In so far as this fact is used as an attack on the novelists, I do not mind. They have put themselves forward, and they have their reward. But this fact is also used as an attack on the democracy, and I think some explanation ought to be given to the democratic preference in such things, even if it is not so much an explanation as a conjecture. It does not very much matter what we think of one individual lady known as Miss Marie Corelli, but it does very much matter what we think of the thousands of our fellow citizens who are reading her books. Like every good thing, democracy is always the object of a secret war. This perpetual disparagement of the public choice will eventually be used against political self-government, and men will invoke the circulating library to destroy the jury. There is one thing that ought clearly to be seen. It alters the whole landscape. You and I, as I may fairly infer, from our writing in this paper or reading it, are bookish people. I purposely refuse to say educated people, because we are most probably quite uneducated about many other things, such as theology or gunnery or music, or horses or housekeeping. But we do know a great deal about books. And when we talk of a good book, we mean one in which all the parts fit together into a certain poetic harmony, just what the musician means when he talks about a good piece of music. But the mass of men, who are quite intelligent, do not buy books as if each book were a complete harmony, a small cosmos in which every part was perfect. To co-relate and consider all the parts of a book would be as hard to them as sitting out the whole of a Wagner opera would be to me. I happen to be rather above the human average touching books and very much below it touching music. The ordinary man buys books in the most exact sense as goods. That is to say, his base commercial soul supposes simply that he can get some good out of them. Granted that good of some kind is embedded in the thing, he does not care where it is embedded or whether it is properly related to the rest of the stuff. If the ordinary man steals a ring in which he knows there is a diamond, it will be in vain for the esthete to assure him that the diamond is quite wrongly set in the ring. If the ordinary man buys an estate in which there is a gold mine, it will be useless for the landscape painter to assure him that the mine is in the wrong part of the landscape. If the goods are in the box, he does not care whether they are in harmony with the box. Now there are certain good things in a book that have no necessary connection at all with literary harmony. Take one example first. A riddle is an interesting thing quite apart from any literary quality in its form. When our nurse propounds to us the problem, when I was going to St. Ives, I met a man with seven wives, etc., we admire the riddle without necessarily admiring the poem. Now a whole department of popular fiction exists simply to give people riddles rather than romances. I mean the things commonly called detective stories. If the question is complex and the answer clever, the ordinary reader does not care whether the style is slipshod or the characters crude. And the ordinary reader is quite right. There's nothing in the least unintelligent in wanting the mere fun of seeing a puzzle pulled to pieces. Nor is there anything unintelligent in paying for what you want. 
he has as much right to prefer a puzzle in criminology to a study in human nature as i have to prefer a study in human nature to a problem in algebra the point is that a love of puzzles exists and men are justified in gratifying it either in mathematics or in murders now i believe that the same explanation covers the cloudy religious novel which has been popularized by miss corelli and by mr silas hawking the detective story is a development of our nursery riddles the religious novel is the development of our nursery prayers the very thing which makes such books bad as books is the very thing that makes them good as rituals or reminders i mean their perpetual use of moral platitude the huge popularity of such works is really commensurate and coincident with the fact that england has lost its religion reading miss corelli's novels is really a sort of substitute for going to church a very inadequate substitute as i willingly concede but it is really unreasonable to complain that such books are full of cheap and obvious sentiment for so any religious service must necessarily be the sane and healthy man has a right to ask for oddities in his riddles and he has a right also to ask for truisms in his religion the real explanation for the popularity of books i therefore maintain to be this that the books perform certain functions which books were never meant to perform at all and if the books truly fulfil other functions it is really unfair to ask them if they also fulfil the function of books a man reads a detective novel because he cannot induce the old nurse to tell him any really long riddle he reads a horsey novel because he has no horse to ride or perhaps having one does not know which end to climb up he reads warlike novels because his country has not been at war seriously for a century and he reads religious novels because his country is perishing for lack of religion end of section two end of g k chesterton and the bibliophile magazine by g k chesterton